Deep pattern, downfield, touchdown Miami. What a throw, Devontae Parker. Holy smokes, what a drive. What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we stride right into the NFL's dead period with an action-packed show. I'm going to talk about development and the improvements players have seen under the watch of head coach Brian Flores and his staff. We're going to discuss the media from the end of last week with Byron Jones, Jesse Davis, and coach himself, and we'll discuss Father's Day weekend on this busy, busy edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And I'm hoping all the papas in the world enjoyed their special day on Sunday. How do you guys do Father's Day out there? Do you get the King's treatment all day? For me, we had some family obligations to fulfill. And then once we got done with that, I was granted access to do whatever the hell I wanted to do on Sunday night, which was watch Hawks and Sixers Game 7 and more on the sports weekend here in just a moment as well as the season five premiere of Rick and Morty, which as completely expected, hit the ball, not just out of the ballpark, but about 490 feet out of the stadium. I mean, Mr. Nimbus, Morty's actions causing the culture of an entire planet to be based on defeating him. Just an A-plus episode. And just as I was thinking about the last time I anticipated a new episode of one of my favorite shows the new season of Dave comes out, which speaking of A+, the way they intertwine drama and comedy in that show on FXX and Gaeta is quickly becoming one of my favorite actors slash personalities is just absolutely fantastic. That's one of the best shows on TV right now. Then we get on Netflix, I think you should leave season two here in just a couple of weeks. And right behind that is Impractical Joker. So good times in the TV world, really for my money for the first time since pre-pandemic. Then, how about the sports weekend that was? And maybe this is the, it is the the payoff for all the sports we missed last year, but it just feels like every weekend we're getting fantastic sports with hockey and basketball and the U.S. Open and F1. I won't mention my Seattle Mariners more than just to say they swept last year's American League champion Tampa Bay Rays in a four-game series. Cool, I guess. We're back over 500, but that's, that's all I care to say about that. But the French Grand Prix was a thriller. To me, it's so weird to see Lewis Hamilton not be one of, or not to be the guy, rather, to make the move to steal a win last moment. Exciting stuff there from Max Verstappen with the Red Bull car, who, even though I'm not a huge fan of his, has made the Drivers' Championship super interesting because he can challenge Lewis Hamilton and the Mercedes team. And good on my personal squad, the McLaren team, for a fifth and sixth finish there at the French Grand Prix with Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo, my favorite driver. And then there were the hoops and the hockey, but I'll be real with you guys here for just one second. Hockey is just not sticking for me as a sport for whatever reason, but hoops really are. And so much so that I'm officially the owner of some Miami Heat apparel for the first time in my life. And the team that made quick work of the Heat is now on to the Eastern Conference Finals. And that was the biggest win of the NBA postseason to me because I just can't wait to see the super team kind of go away and become a thing of the past. And it appears to maybe be trending in that direction. The Nets were the only one left, I suppose, with the Lakers seemingly in some disarray with LeBron finally showing some age and Anthony Davis, his injury history there. 
So to see them lose was awesome. Plus, Kevin Durant and James Harden, to me, are still supersonics in my book, so I'm never going to root for anything OKC-related, and I love Giannis and his story, and I'm rooting like hell for that dude to get himself a championship. So go Bucks the rest of the way, and I'll pull for the Suns in the West because, A, I love Chris Paul. I have since the Wake Forest days, but also our social media coordinator, or as of last week, our former social media coordinator, Simran Dave. Congrats on the new gig, Sim, at Bleacher Report. You've definitely uh, earned it and deserve it. She's a huge, huge, diehard, real Phoenix Suns fan. So it was fun to see how excited she is after all these big Suns wins coming back to the office and she's pumped up. So Suns, Bucks is my hope and I'm hoping it's Milwaukee that captures the crown jewel at the end of it all. Last thing here on Father's Day before the football, I want to make a special mention of the stepfathers out there, the unsung heroes and the ultimate selfless act of treating another person's child as your own. I was raised by a stepdad and I am forever grateful for him. So just a shout out to stepdads out there. So how about that football on the plane ride back to Washington state for what seems like the 30th freaking time over the last 18 months or so that I've made that flight. And it was my final bi-coastal jump back over the country before we as a family make the move here in total for good the next month. Inspiration kind of struck me on this flight as I began to do some writing. And if you couldn't tell, I was trying to establish a bit of a theme and line of thinking in my questions for Coach Flores and the players last week at OTA's media availabilities with regards to testing the waters, as Coach Flo put it. And I wasn't just hoping to examine Coach's comments or Tua's comments or anybody else we talked to about being aggressive in practice. After all, this is nothing new. This is what practice has been in sport since the beginning of time. To relate my own experience in sports, my regular audience knows that I was a baseball guy back in my heyday. And in batting practice, we had some rules. We had to get one down, which is a bunt, obviously. We had to get them over, hit the baseball the other way to the right side if you're a right-handed hitter, and get them in. Get lift on a ball to the outfield to get your sack fly. Then my next 15 or so swings were just trying to hit line drives into either gap, left center field or right center field, depending on where the pitch was on the outer half or the inner half. And I know these are different times pre-launch angle. And then I would take a few swings where I did try to pony up and lift the baseball. Now I ran into a few home runs in my heyday, despite the fact that I was a leadoff hitter who stole a bunch of bases and was always on base. But it wasn't because of trying to elevate the baseball. And you know why I didn't bring it up over into games? Because I wasn't good at it in batting practice. So I would stick to spraying the ball all over the field because it got me on base better than half the time and created more runs for my team than if I tried to hit the big three-run homer. So I tested it out in practice. That's the time to find out what your limitations or potential limitations are and find out what you do best on the game day field. And so in thinking about that and thinking about coaches' comments and then consider the results of the development we've seen here with the individuals on this club that has been night and day to what it was before Flo arrived for almost an entire generation of Dolphins fans too. I mean, how many times, and especially especially to division rivals, did we see talent go out the door and then flourish elsewhere? For me, and I want to hear from older, older Dolphins fans on this, but it probably didn't happen nearly as much because, well, Don Bleep and Shula was here. But for me, it started with Wes Welker. Then remember the Rex Ryan Buffalo Bills. Not the Jets, the Rex Ryan Bills. And that game where he made every ex-Dolphin on their squad, which was four deep, a captain. Richie Incognito, Charles Clay, Chris Hogan, and Dan Carpenter all out there for the coin toss. And that was a rough, rough 
41 to 14 game that was really over by midway through the second quarter. I think we threw a pick six to make it 20 to one to nothing. And hell, those guys were the ones doing all the scoring for the Bills. Clay scored the very first touchdown of the game, and they got themselves that big lead and started pumping the football to both Clay and Chris Hogan, who found the end zone to make it 34 to six or something like that in the fourth quarter. So for a long time, that was kind of the norm. But now, now you see guys get here and they get better. You see draft picks show a clear trajectory in the right direction, a la a Jerome Baker. And so it got me thinking, we know about the results, but what about the process to get there? Now, I'm not going to be able to take you inside the entire plan of getting a player, concocting a plan for said player's development, and then executing that plan for the player's development. And a quick aside, one I will never forget, was the first season of the fantastic Amazon slash NFL film series, All or Nothing, when Bruce Arians, then the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, was talking about their rookie running back that they were very fond of in David Johnson and how he was running back kickoffs, making big explosive plays in the passing game. And Arians would talk not so candidly to his coaching staff that was, of course, picked up by the cameras there about how they were going to keep him in more of this complimentary role until about Thanksgiving or so to keep him hungry to keep him humble amidst all the success that he was having in that initial rookie season. And to tie it all back together, the ultimate place of development is on that practice field. You put in the film work, you put up the weights, you stay disciplined in the kitchen, but when it's time to apply everything you've taken in the, I guess, extracurricular portion of the job and put it on the field and test those mechanics and your skill sets you've developed against your teammates, and other guys working on the same things, that's when you see the proverbial sausage come through the grinder or whatever that machine's called. And that's how you get your display form, your sausage that goes in front of the window to sell to your customers. So I want to take a look at the roster and check out some of the names that can definitively point to and say, here's a guy, no, here's a guy that has really blossomed with this team since 2019 or 2020 or you know whenever it happened within that framework of time. And I start at the quarterback position with, well, who else besides starting quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa. Go back to week 15 last year against the Patriots. The Dolphins are on that 98-yard march right inside the five-yard line, about to score, go up 7-0, take a lead in a very important game against division rival New England. And it looks like it's going to be a Dolphins touchdown, but then Tua gets some heat. He throws a ball to the outside under pressure, and it's picked off by J.C. Jackson, as Tua described it himself, a rookie mistake in that moment. But what's the hallmark of the great players in this league. There are a few, but one of them is the ability to take an occurrence that happened in-game, learn from it, and then within that same game, apply those lessons later on. And we heard exactly the same praise for rookie Dolphins outside linebacker Jalen Phillips from Brett Coleman, who came on the podcast. He's from The Film Room on YouTube, does great work there, uh, breaking down some, some NFL and college football. And he talked about the best traits of each Miami rookie. And he said his favorite thing about watching Jalen's college tape at the U was how he could counter moves that were successful early in ball games, thwarting his pass rush to make an impact in the second half. Now that is the hallmark of a pass rusher you want on your squad. Key third downs in the second half, and he's figured out how to beat his man. That's choice stuff. Back to Tua, same game, fourth quarter, third and goal, trailing nine to seven in the game. He gets pressure, he makes a move in space, and forces a missed tackle right at the goal line to get it across for six. In-game application of adjustments and lessons applied big time for a then 22-year-old quarterback. At running back, Miles Gaskin 
is inactive through the first nine weeks of his rookie season, gets the call and sees five snaps. Next week, seven snaps, then 16, then 16 again, and then 13 before finally seeing 34 snaps in each of the next two games where he posts 130 yards from scrimmage and his first career touchdown. Not bad for a rookie seventh round draft pick getting his first significant action. Then he gets to camp in 2020 and he's in the debrief podcast slash story on drive time and miamidolphins.com every single day because to me, he was looking the part of not just a contributor, but a possible feature back. And lo and behold, he enters week one and gets overwhelmingly the majority of the Dolphins' workload among running backs in that week one game and winds up finishing the season as the 10th highest player among all NFL running backs in average yards per scrimmage, for, uh, yards from scrimmage rather, per game. Say that 10 times fast. And one of college football's most productive running backs over a four-year span takes a year to pick up the speed of the game or the playbook or whatever it might have been where Miles really progressed for himself. The results spoke for themselves here under coach Eric Studisville in that running backs room. And... Savon Ahmed, his best friend and, and teammate at UW, now teammate here in Miami, goes from waiver wire to a back who averages a team-high 4.25 yards per carry and breaks the streak the Dolphins had for not having a 100-yard rusher at 25 games and finishes his rookie season with almost 400 YFS yards from scrimmage and three total touchdowns on just 89 touches. Production from a guy that was undrafted and got here in August after spending the entire summer with another club. Also, he was activated for the first time in week nine after not being active for the first three games when he was called up to the active roster in week five against the 49ers, his former team. So he gets here and learns and does the process and develops and gets production. For Miles Gaskin, with his game and his, his skill set jump, I, I just look at the balance that he showed and the way he's able to not only make tackling angles more difficult, but to bounce off of them and stay on his feet. And he talked about this this offseason with some media availability about getting stronger and specifically strengthening awkward type of movements or muscle groups like your ankles or just finding ways to mimic the football movement that you can't do with traditional weightlifting or even certain agility movements. Like you have to find certain ways to mimic football movement. He talked about that in this offseason. At the receiver position, you look no further than Devontae Parker. Sticks, number 11 himself. He gained more yards in 2019 than he did in 17 and 18 combined. He also caught 13 of his 22 touchdowns in his career since the arrival of Brian Flores and staff and under the watch of wide receivers coach Josh Grizzard, who went from assistant receivers coach in 2019 to earning a promotion to full-time receivers coach in 2020. And not just that, but Devontae's games played average saw a nice bump from 13 and a quarter games per season in his first four years in the league up to 15 games per season each of the last two. He's been more physical, I thought. His contested catch ability has just shot through the roof and he goes up there and that football is his when it's in the air between he and a defender. Speaking of contested catches, Preston Williams, an undrafted free agent to a guy that's played 16 games in two years, a couple of unfortunate injuries to end those seasons, but he produced 716 yards and seven touchdowns. That's really good production from a UDFA in 16 games. The tight end position might have the best example of all from growth in Mike Gesicki, and his usage went from 22% in line as a traditional wide tight end in 2018, his rookie season, to less than 10% to capitalize on those gifts that he shows as a receiver to help get him more free releases and all the benefits that come from playing detached from the line opposed to being in line. And he responds by 
showing a just growth in the functional strength, the improved ability to fight through reroutes and stemming safeties and linebackers off the line from 202 yards as a rookie to 570 in his second season, and then 703 last year. Also, no touchdowns as a rookie, five in that sophomore campaign, and a career-high six last season. And how about the yards per target jump he saw in 2020? Up to 8.3. That's 8.3 for a tight end. That's receiver numbers. And that's up from 6.4 and 6.3 his first two seasons. And really, that stretch of production began in Week 12 of 2019. He scored all five of his touchdowns from Week 12 on, right around Thanksgiving up through December. And how about a rookie on the offensive line in Robert Hunt? He goes from extra offensive lineman, sixth or seventh guy off the bench in the heavy personnel, to starting right tackle. And all he does is play out the final six games of last season as one of PFF's top 10 graded offensive tackles. Take that for what you will. Onto the defense, we saw Raekwon Davis get an elevation of playing time right around the midway point of the season, and his play took off from there. We've noted his pressures, his run stops, his tackles for loss, all those jumps he saw about midway through the season last year, as we have discussed on this podcast. His teammate on the defensive line there, Zach Sealer, he gets here in December of 2019 after being waived by the Baltimore Ravens, and he has an immediate impact with some promising reps in a Week 15 game at the Giants. And then the production to match the following week where he records a bunch of pressures, hits, sacks, TFLs against the Bengals in that game. Also had some pass breakups at the line. Then partway into the 2020 season, he earns a contract extension and, and for what it's worth, he claimed a spot in the top 20 on Brandon Thorne's true sack rate for interior rushers. Brandon Thorne evaluates pass rushers and offensive linemen. He did the podcast back in, I want to say, February which is really impressive to me for Zach because he plays inside and outside and those outside reps didn't count in this particular measurement. So good work there from Zach Sealer as a pass rusher and the interior defensive line. Christian Wilkins had a nice jump too. And just real quick, year two jumps I think are interesting because they are automatically assumed by every single fan base, right? Like you you think that you're going to see a, like without doubt, a tangible jump from a player from year one to year two because that's just how you operate when you don't have the benefit of full information. But it doesn't always happen. Maybe we've become a bit spoiled into thinking that it does the last couple of years. But I'm old enough to remember the likes of Jason Allen or John Beck or Chad Henney or Jamar Taylor. And the list goes on and on and on. But Wilkins took a tangible jump. Pro Football Reference had him with an approximate value, a, a stat that measures just a player's overall impact on the game and the season and, and every year of their career of four in 2019. That number went all the way up to seven in 2020, which was the same number as Raekwon Davis for comparison's sake. And I've got several examples of this development and growth in the second level of the defense. Jerome Baker, I mean, we covered that pretty thoroughly in the episode last week, tracking his extension. The box score production was unreal in 2020 after showing his medal as a versatile, durable, explosive four-down player his first two years in the league. And one thing I liked about Jerome this year, personally, was the improvement in taking on blocks. I thought he showed real growth in that area. And speaking of that, our next candidate on this list is Andrew Van Ginkle. Now, if you were riding with me back in the Lockdown Dolphins days, you remember my personal AVG journey. I was not familiar with him, with his game, when the Dolphins drafted him in 2019, but I got right to work, and after two or three tapes 
I couldn't believe this guy made it to the fifth round. He had one big year of production at Wisconsin, and it was easy to see why, because watching his tape, you would find him locate bodies, not just grass, but locate route runners, potential threats on his zone drops and take them away. He would gain depth when he got out to the flat to help him locate what route concept it might be. And there were clips in his rookie season that confirmed what I saw on that Wisconsin tape. Shoot, they're on my timeline from two years ago. He's not just picking up routes that originate from his side of the football. He's finding backside crossers and walling them off and disrupting pass lanes. A very high-level concept thinker when it comes to defending the passing game at that linebacker position. And the one thing that wasn't a consistent occurrence of his on the college tape was taking on and defeating those blocks. And then he misses the first 11 games of his career with a dang injury. I was so bummed to see that. But then he comes back in and he's doing it all of a sudden, like regularly. He's knifing in there and cutting possible split zone blocks. He's spilling out fullbacks and tripping up the ball carrier for tackles for loss in addition to the zone drops in coverage. And so that kind of to to me speaks to just because a guy doesn't have something on his college tape, doesn't mean he can't do it. We talk about this with running backs all the time that don't have pass game production in college. Like if a coach sees something in a player that I can maybe develop and turn him into that player, that's great. And maybe that's what happened here with Van Ginkle because he has been really good in that area as a pro. And then just last year, he turns up the pass rush and at the most critical times. Shaq Lawson, who was a prominent fixture on the defense, played plenty of downs last year, but the two games he missed were San Fran and Las Vegas. And Gink's stat line in those two games, he combined for seven quarterback pressures, three sacks, 14 tackles, a forced fumble, and outside of those games, he also scored a 78-yard fumble return for a touchdown, and he blocked a punt that put us on the one-yard line to get another touchdown on the board. If we're talking about true impact four-down players, consider that growth as a fifth-round pick just two years ago at the same position, Sam Egwavon came down from Canada, and all he did in 2019 was rank in the top five among off-ball linebackers in QB pressures. Now, granted, he also led that group in pass rush reps per pro football focus, and remember, off-ball does not include the likes of the Von Millers of the world, the Khalil Max, your outside on-ball rushers. This is only off-ball linebackers, guys that play on a two-point stance away from the football. But it speaks to what the Dolphins saw in Egwavon and how they were able to use his skills with that quick first step and that closing speed at that linebacker position, which made him a mainstay on the Miami Dolphins special teams each of the last two years also. Elandon Roberts had his highest approximate value on pro football reference since 2017 last year. He notched a career-high eight tackles for loss despite matching a career low in games played with 13-2. Again, those dang injuries. Vince Beagle led the team in quarterback pressures in 2019 after arriving in September in a player-for-player swap for Kiko Alonso with the Saints. And it should be noted that he had five total quarterback pressures his first two seasons in Green Bay and in New Orleans, respectively, before checking in with 34 pressures in 2019, where he also added 22 run stops and an interception. All those, obviously, career bests. And then finally, in the defensive secondary, Four players set or tied their career high in INTs last season under DB's coach Gerald Alexander, Xavier Howard, Byron Jones, Eric Rowe, and Nick Needham, who matched the two from his rookie season. We'll start there with Eric Rowe, a midseason positional convert in 2019 who went on to post awesome numbers in coverage, primarily against tight ends, 
And he said going into last season, his second as a safety or, or his first full season as a primary safety, that he wanted to work on fitting the run and learning the aspect of that position further because as you often see, number 21's down there in the trash, mixing it up with guys that he's giving in excess of 80 or 90 pounds to at times down there. And his highest AV before Miami, three. The last two years, six and seven. Growth, improvement, development of rookies and veterans alike. Speaking of rookies, Nick Needham, undrafted cornerback out of UTEP. UTEP, you know how hard it is to go from a Conference USA competition to the NFL? Well, Nick did it, and last year, which was his first converting from a primary outside corner to a slot guy inside, in matchups with Cooper Cup, Keenan Allen, Jamison Crowder, and Tyler Boyd, four of the best slot guys in the NFL the last few years, eight receptions on 14 targets for 86 yards, no touchdowns, and a pick. That's 6.14 yards per target. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. So the list is tangible. It's long. And it's got me thinking about the proverbial ping pong balls and the hopper that could be on this list next season at this time. We start at the receiver position, Jalen Waddell. There's no real precedent here, but if if you're a fan of the podcast, you know how good I think Jalen Waddell can be and why the Dolphins took him with that sixth pick in the draft. As Daniel Jeremiah says, freaky fast with the GPS records to match. And that changes the way defenses have to defend, especially when you've got another one, an accomplished guy in Will Fuller with similar vertical speed. And oh yeah, Jakeem Grant, Robert Foster, both who have notched sub 4-3 40-yard dash times once upon a time in their pro days. But I digress. That's not the point here. Staying at that position, Lynn Bowden had late season emergence last year, and now he's got the full benefit of a full off season working with Tua and the quarterbacks and the rest of the receivers. And last year, they talked a little bit about the offensive staff, how Lynn was getting caught up as he got here in September and and working through some special packages to get him touches, but how he had to really work extra hard to get the base concepts of the offense down because he was a late arrival. Shoot, he was here and we had a game in a week. That's how much time he had to get acclimated. And he got more and more comfortable as the season went along and produced more and more late in the season. You go to the offensive line, Austin Jackson, Rob Hunt, Solomon Kinley. These guys have such rare physical traits in terms of their athletic ability and the power and the pop and the nastiness with which they play. Again, the full off season. Shoot, I thought we saw growth from all three of these guys in season. Now you get the full complement of the off season. I think it's only reasonable to expect growth from those guys as well. And then one other guy on the offensive line, Michael Dieter. I think it was like 18 or 22 reps in there that he played last year in place of an injured Solomon Kinley on the offensive line. But they were good reps. And I think the year of seasoning could be really good for Mike, who I thought looked a little bit stronger and fitter in the right places back in minicamp last week. On the defensive side of the ball, I think Jalen Phillips is a pretty prominent name on this list if you talk to fans and other writers that cover this sport. But I'm going to put Adam Butler in here too, even though this is already an accomplished player with a resume in the NFL. I look at how the Dolphins have rebuilt or reconstructed the interior of this defense this offseason. And you've heard me mention this about, I don't know, 25 or 55 times or so. But the trio of Baker, Bernardrick McKinney, another newcomer, and Adam Butler, they complement each other so well, in my opinion, that the stats might not be evenly shared among the three. But the one common goal that we all care about is shutting down opposing offenses. I think that trio will play a large part in accomplishing that goal. Because the combo of their size and their speed and that first step explosiveness, all of them have it. And like I said, it's hard to predict who's going to get the sacks, the hits, the hurries, but I think Adam is in a position to really capitalize and be one of those guys we talk about at this time next year in terms of career highs and some key stats. 
In the secondary, I just point to all the young guys. Javon Holland, I've made no secret about how much I love his college tape. The ball hawking, the instinctive nature to pull the trigger before the ball comes out. He comes in and makes plays in condensed areas and lays the wood in short areas and can play deep as well as far as his college tape goes. Brandon Jones, instinctive players in my experience tend to benefit the most from that year two jump. And my goodness, I love hearing Brandon talk X's and O's and the mental side of the game. He damn near jumped a little hookup route in Jacksonville last year to LaVisca Chenault. And my hope is with a year of experience and playing a tenth of a second faster, he can turn that from a completion to not just a pass breakup, but maybe a pick, maybe even a pick six. I also want to mention the sack he had against the Jets and the block against the Cardinals that he had to spring Shaq Lawson for that long touchdown when Ogba punched it out. Just two plays that show his will, his hustle, and his versatility as he got that sack on the against the Jets in the red zone when the Dolphins were in a 0-0 game trying to get off the field to force a field goal in a very important game last December. So good work there from Brandon Jones. And let's go ahead and finish it up here with Noah Igbenogany as he provides a bit of a segue here to our first media veil to cover from last week. As Byron Jones talked about the studious nature of this game, he talked about it last season, how he's here with the coaches before everybody else, and he's here after with the coaches working on stuff. We talked about the physical stature that he showed in that workout video I talked about a couple weeks back on the podcast, where he's out there shirtless, moving around, just looks physically built, but also quick and in those awesome shades too, by the way. And Byron also mentioned his training camp last year, saying he balled out last camp, and that matched my notes, where he was often in those debrief pieces and talking about how competitive he was going up against Devontae Parker and Preston Williams, guys that have caught big passes in this league on game days. And then he has a strong OTA this year as well. And the fact that he has the coaching we've talked about, I mean, Flores, Boyer, Alexander, and Burks talk about being in good hands there. And I don't want to leave the other rookies off this list because I love this draft class so much. So Eichenberg, Long, Coleman, Dokes, the UDFAs, we'll be keeping an eye on those guys for when we revisit this piece next summer and not to mention the dark horse candidates who will inevitably produce at least a name or two that we just did not see coming because that is how football works and that's what makes it so much fun. All right, Byron Jones met with the media last week and I love talking to Byron because he gives you such thoughtful, in-depth answers. And I also just feel like he has an interesting perspective and approach to the game. One of the things I wanted to ask Byron about was if you watch him during games or practice when he's not on the field or he's not taking reps, he's usually off to the side doing something, whether it's staying loose or working on technique. It it reminds me a lot of myself when I was back to my baseball days. I had a very specific on deck routine where if I wasn't able to get that routine in before and at bat, I wasn't very happy with the results I would get most of the time. So I always, always had to be strict to that routine. It kind of reminds me of that because you just see him, he's out there doing some side shuffling or just getting some kind of work in to stay loose. He talked about that. He also talked about his mindset of every single season being a reset and how you have to build up from step one and stack the days on top of each other before you get to where your ultimate goal is at the end of the season. I thought that was a very unique perspective, but his best answer was when I asked him about another theme of media this week, 
where we were talking about playing multiple positions and how that helps you gain a different perspective of seeing the field from different spots, as Coach Flores talked about. So I asked Byron about his time playing safety in Dallas, and now that he's been a cornerback in his last couple of years there in Dallas, and now with Miami going into a second season here, about how that helped him. And he gave me a fantastic answer talking all things football. Let's go to Byron. Yeah, no, it's very valuable. So, for example, like cover two. As a corner on cover two, I can be as aggressive as I want at the line of scrimmage because I do have an over-the-top safety, but there is a weak spot. It's called the honey hole. And uh, if you're if you've never been a safety, you don't really know how hard it is to get from, you know, the numbers all the way to the sideline when the quarterback throws that dart. Uh, so as a corner, I, I typically carry those honey hole shots a little bit longer than most corners because I just know what it feels like to be a safety. So um, just being a guy, I've been in this league for now seven years. I play multiple positions. I try to help out my guys uh, as much as I can. I try to take as much stress off the safeties and they try to do the same for me as a corner. Um, I try to understand where, where my help is. So I play, you know, certain leverage, inside leverage, outside leverage, depending on where my help is. And, um, you know, you, you gain a better appreciation for the defense in, in, in its entirety when you actually understand and, and appreciate each position. Um, so, no, it's, it's, it's invaluable. And that's one thing that uh, that's awesome about some of the young guys we have on our team because they're so versatile and they're playing different positions and learning uh, those different perspectives. So that's going to be valuable in the future and, and, and this year as well. To kind of cover some of the verbiage there that Byron talks about, the honey hole, if you consider the little gap between where the safety and the underneath cornerback are in cover two, think about the Mac Hollins completion against the Raiders last year where they had the deep safety off and a cornerback underneath who turned Mac Hollins free. And that's what Byron's talking about with carrying that receiver. You kind of carry him further up and then you kind of close back down the flat if someone's in that area once you pass him off to where you say, I can let him get past me now because the safety has enough time to get over there. And NFL quarterbacks are so good with you know, velocity and putting rip on the football and, and seeing things that if you give them that opening, they can find that soft spot in the zone and attack it. So it's cool to hear Byron talk about that. He also discussed, you know, plenty of other content where he, you know, he talked about the younger players right there. He talks about Noah Egbenogany a bunch and the work habits he sees from Noah and the physical traits that he showcases. He also talked a little bit about some of his charitable work, you know, the Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee for the Miami Dolphins last year. And it shows with the way he conducts himself as a leader on the football field as well as in the community. We also heard from Coach last Thursday as he was asked about OTAs and the value of getting these mini camps and some of the offseason programs to help develop camaraderie and team chemistry. Talked about working on techniques and fundamentals on the field. And he said, anytime you can get on the field to work with our coaching staff or the players can work with our coaching staff and go through these techniques and fundamentals, get them corrected, go out there, do them again and get better at them. I think repetition is always a good thing. So we're able to get that accomplished. I'm happy with what we did this offseason and hopefully it helps us moving forward into training camp and into preseason games and into the season. He was also asked about his message to players during this dead period, as we call it, and he said his message was to go on vacation, to take this time to recharge, get some rest, spend time with your families, your friends, your loved ones. He talked about having balance in your life, so that was his message to the team. But at the same time, keep yourself in condition and train, and this is me speaking now because that South Florida heat in August and July It is unrelenting, so these guys are going to have to work on it. Here I am doing a podcast in my upstairs of my house without central air. We have an AC unit in the window. I'm preparing for training camp, going through the heat down here uh, in this podcast studio. Coach also talked about Liam Eichenberg getting his opportunity to get some reps and what he looks like as a player. Talked about Jalen Waddle too, saying, from a health standpoint, I think you saw him run yesterday. I'm looking at him run, and it looks like he's doing all right from that standpoint. So that was good to hear him confirm that for us. 
Coach also talked about the center position. We talked about Michael Dieter earlier in the podcast. He spoke about his flexibility playing guard, playing center, playing some tackle, and really across the offensive line, talking about being in competition to get playing time this season and how Michael is excited about the opportunity. He also was asked further about Michael Dieter, Matt Skura, and Cameron Tom, three of the interior offensive linemen that have center attached to their position and he's talked about signing players with the idea that they will create competition and nobody's going to be given anything and he talks about how at all positions that's always the plan to come in compete learn the playbook communicate with your teammates and we'll play the best people at whatever position he also talked about playing the best five guys along the offensive line And Jesse was asked about being at OTAs at this stage of his career, and he talked about being accountable and just being wherever they need him to be. So I'm not going to tell them, no, I like playing. I like being out there. I like mixing it up with the guys to be out there for OTAs. I thought that was a cool quote from Jesse. He talked about bouncing around positions and having that experience and then passing that along to younger guys to give them an idea of what to expect. How do you play this guy? How do you set this? He said, I like being a teacher for these guys because they've all got to play too, and I look forward to watching them. He was also asked about being in that leadership role and how not being scared of competition because vets that helped him along the way weren't scared of his competition, and he wants to kind of give that back and help these young guys, and that's part of the role to be a leader. You've got to help your team out, he says, and if you're afraid of competition, this is not the place to be. He spoke about more confidence from his quarterback in Tua Tunga-Vailoa, how he's seen that, how he's seen great leadership, how he's taking control of the huddle and knows exactly what he's doing. And on that topic, Jesse weighed in on the first day of practice, and he said the only way to get better is by failure. It's just one practice. It was raining, Jesse said. And I want to finish up here this podcast with Jesse on a comment that he gave me in a response to a question I asked him about playing multiple positions and the things that he can take away from this training camp or from mini camp rather without the pads on because coach Flores talked about there's no bull rushes there's those guys you can't lean on people and hit them because we don't have full pads on so here's Jesse talking about what you can take from this time of year I think it's a good reminder of what we're looking at to evaluate in June practices yeah you know you're not it's mostly you know passes not a lot of runs not like fitting up or anything Um, you know you're kind of getting your sets you're getting your hand work more technique base, you know, more funnily with that. But, um, you know, I'm just trying to get myself to quiet my feet down, keep my hands tight. And I think that everybody does that in the line too, you know, just trying to work the same thing. It's not as easy as it sounds, but it, I mean, that's kind of the thing, you, you know, you go into these camps trying to work. So there's Jesse talking about his workload. And as for the workload on this podcast, that is going to be my time. One last mention here on the podcast Huge, huge amounts of respect for Carl Nassib of the Las Vegas Raiders. He announced on social media he came out as the only currently active NFL player to come out as gay in the league. So very, very courageous there from Carl Nassib. He also announced a $100,000 donation to a suicide prevention foundation called the Trevor Project. So very cool stuff there from Carl Nassib. And happy Pride Month to Carl and everybody out there in the community. All right, let's go ahead and finish up this podcast here with a reminder to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Go ahead and leave us a rating and leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. You can follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible podcast. And of course, last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.